Are you calling Rincewind a talking animal? Yes. Yeah. Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. It's, the type of animal is human. And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month, we're not doing that. No. <laughs> this month, we're recording live at the Australian Discworld Convention, Nullis Anxiety 7! So for our first live show, we're reading Trollbridge, which could be another name for the internet. And our guest is author and podcaster Tansy Rayner Roberts. Welcome, Tansy. Thank you for inviting me. I have in no way been stalking Ben for several years in the hopes <laughs> that he will invite me to be on this podcast. Well, so far, haven't you've, been we all? On, you've been on like two out of my four podcasts that yeah, I've ever done. I know, so. and yet, have I been invited to this one before now? No, I have not. There's well, a limit to how many times I can DM you about it without sounding desperate. <laughs> We try. We tried to make it work at a few previous conventions. But you've been on more of Ben's podcast than I have, so there's that. That's true. Well, that's true. That's true. Um, well, let's not talk about my other podcasts. <laughs> that's not why we're here. Tenzi, when did you start getting into Pratchett? I discovered the Discworld probably around 13, 14, when I was... I discovered fantasy fiction at the age of 12, which is the right age to discover adult fantasy fiction, and I decided to read all of it. Uh, so I was in the process of reading all of it, and I do mean all of it. Um, and, yeah, I think just about the point at which I could have hit my epic fantasy fatigue, because, you know, Dragonlance put out a lot of books, and I was reading all of them. And I was reading stuff from the 30s, I was reading stuff from the 80s, I was reading all over, and then The Colour of Magic came along. And now I know that, like, it feels like Discworld fans are a bit embarrassed about The Colour of Magic. Like, the idea that maybe, you know, it was just that you don't have to start with that one or people look at you really sadly if, if you tell them that that was your first one. But actually, if you've been reading a lot of other, especially quite old fantasy fiction at the time, it, I thought it was amazing. It was really nice to figure out that, oh, it was okay to love fantasy and make fun of it. Yeah. That was a really important lesson for me and I think I probably wouldn't have continued to be quite so in love with the genre if it hadn't been for that at really crucial time. And it massively shaped my writing as well as my reading. So, yeah, Discord was a really big deal for me. Yeah. <laughs> and it still is. Yeah. yeah. And so what, what kind of influence do you think it had on your writing? Well, I stopped writing the um, epic 12-book, very serious fantasy series that I'd started writing when I was 13... Uh, and did you, I, did you, sorry, did you map it all out before you started or did oh, you yes, sort of I jump did. straight in? Yeah, no, I, I planned my 12-book <laughs> epic fantasy series. Mm-hmm. Um, it was loosely based on Blake 7, but it was in a forest. Um, <laughs> I had all my titles, which is the most important thing if you're writing a 12-book epic fantasy series at the age of 13. Um, yeah, but no, I was, so I was probably hit about 15, 16, and I just 
hit a wall with fantasy, hated everything I was writing, and I redid. I, I started again, and at 17, I started writing fun, funny comic fantasy. And that's the reason I got my first novel published at the age of 20, because that was that, was that direction that I took, writing, writing funny fiction instead of, instead of very, very serious, serious fiction and with lots of blood and death. And, and yeah. asides about the no, meaning I, of life. As it turns out, putting more flying sheep in your books. That was how I got published. <laughs> I mean, not for very long. The publishing industry quickly learned that this was possibly not the best way to sell fantasy fiction in Australia. But, you know, I got, I got two books published before they figured that out. And what was your Android to sheep ratio? Um, well, actually, there's only one key sheep in my Mockler Chronicles, which is the, the books that started with Splash Dance. But he's a very iconic sheep. <laughs> Wait, hang on, what is is that? that on a T-shirt, like an iconic sheep? Because I would, I would love that. It needs to be. And actually, my teenager recently drew me an animatic. I said, hey, you're really good at these animatics. Can you make me a thank you one for my patron? And my teenager was like, sure. And what I got was a pencil sketch of an adorable flying sheep that then morphs into a horrifying monster while blurting out the words, thank you. <laughs> and I'm like, that's brilliant. It's probably not quite on like task, but yeah. But does your teenager take commissions? Yes, yes, yes. I, I now want the iconic sheep t-shirt too. That's going to happen. Oh. I'm going to make that. That's brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for my business, next business concept. <laughs> Look forward to an upcoming Kickstarter. Do you mean thank you? Thank you. <laughs> you do that's all right now look anything we can do uh because i when we decided that we do a short story for the live podcast um i don't think i realized quite how short it was oh so blink I, and you'll miss it i know it's very short so um we'll, we'll see we'll see how much how much time we have to talk about it oh but, i think we can talk quite a bit about it okay like you know whenever you say oh it's like it's like it's a very short book i'm sure this won't be a long conversation yeah incorrect mm. um yeah. It's nine whole pages. I mean, what are you talking about? It's, it's longer it's like than 1, that. like 1,200 words, 2,000? I was reading in a PDF. It was nine pages. Oh, okay. Right, <laughs> right fair, fair. Uh, but shall, we, shall we discuss the story? Now, normally what we do is we, uh, we start when we're discussing a book by reading the blurb. But, of course, there's no blurb for a short story. The short story basically is the blurb. So, uh, instead, I thought I might uh, read out the little intro that Terry wrote for it for A Blink of the Screen, which is the book that I read it out of. So here we go. After the King, for which this was written, was an anthology in honour of J.R.R. Tolkien, rather than being any attempt to trespass in Middle-earth. But it seemed to me that there was a mood I could aim for. Things change, things pass. You fight a war to change the world, and it changes into a world with no place in it for you, the fighter. Those who fight for the bright future are not always, by nature, well-fitted to live in it. Sawmills oust the spiders from the dark wood, the endless plains are fenced. Dot dot dot. It's quite poignant, actually. Yeah, I think, that, yeah. And then there's a talking horse. There is absolutely <laughs> a talking horse, almost immediately, um, which I thought was was interesting because like, we I don't think we ever hear or see this horse ever again, which is which is fine. Colin has a lot of adventures to have. I actually came across this story for the first time. I'm pretty sure it wasn't in either of those books. Um, it was in, I think it was the Mammoth Book of Comic Fantasy. Oh, yeah. One of those really big collections, and I came across it. It was like, oh, he writes short stories too. Uh, and I think this is probably one of the more iconic of the, the Discworld short stories. It's probably one of the most reprinted. 
It's the so, first one that was published. Yeah, and it, it comes across, like, turns up in all sorts of places. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I saw for the first time last night the Australian screening oh. of the short film Trollbridge, which has been in process of being made for the last 16 years. Yeah. Um, it was extraordinary. Like, to, it was just so good. But one of the things that I loved about it, apart from the fact that the visuals are, like, what, when you expected a film, a film based on a story that's kind of based on Tolkien-esque uh, imagery, it, mm. it looked that good, guys. Like, it was really good. <laughs> but also how much they'd lifted the original dialogue. Like, it's, it's the same lines. And because I'd reread the story for this podcast that day, I think, or the day before, it was really extraordinary to see how much, not just the dialogue, but actually some of the lines of the, um, of the narrative as well. So, yeah. Because I haven't had the chance to see it yet, but doing the dialogue directly almost line for line can be a difficult challenge. Like some movies mm. that do that fail really hard. So if it paid off, that's pretty impressive. Well, I mean, I think Terry was really good at dialogue as yeah, well. Like there's something really specific about the Discworld dialogue that's so sharp and funny. And a lot of time it does feel like it's straight out of, you know, a Blackadder script or something. Yeah. So like this, it's it's very... And also it's dialogue that works hard. Like you read the short story, one of the first things we, we learn where Cohen gets his horse from the dialogue, not we don't get a line of backstory about the auction where he bought this horse that belonged to a wizard. You know, we're told this in their cranky conversation with each other. So it's actually dialogue that's set up, I think, really nicely for film. Um, the only other author I've ever found who does that quite as well is actually Mary Wesley, who wrote, like, historical family stories. And when they made TV series of her books... Again, huge chunks of the books were... It was the same dialogue because it was that good. Because it's difficult because I've read previously that with dialogue, often it's supposed to progress character rather than plot. But if you're skilled, you can do both. But, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like everything in a book should do one of those two things. But if it does both, then you're really clever. And yeah. if it does both consistently then, yeah, it's, that's what you really should be trying to do. And, of course, in a screenplay, you, you don't really write a lot aside from dialogue. I mean, you do put in stage directions, but nobody ever reads those. So, so the only... <laughs> oh, I do. I read the heck out of the Shawshank Redemption screenplay. Oh, yeah. It's, got, it's pretty much exactly the book. Which, no, it's not exactly the book. It's exactly the movie, which is what it should be, but they didn't cut a lot out of it. This is very tangential. That's okay. <laughs> that's, it's a podcast. That's what we do. Uh, but, yeah, it's, I, I agree with you. He's, and I think a lot of the moments in a lot of the adaptations that work the best, that have the funniest lines that show up as like, you know, gifs and memes are lifted straight from the books. Mm. Um, and because, and, and that's partly because, you know, they already mean so much to us because we've read them in the book, but also it's because they are often the funniest uh, or most witty or, or most poignant lines. Yeah. And there's some great stuff in here. I, I haven't seen the short film either. Um, and this is not... I just want to make this a matter of public record. It's not because I'm bitter that I um, was going to audition to be in it, but I was in Adelaide when the auditions were on, so I couldn't. Um, and it's not because I really wish I was in it because Don Bridges, who plays uh, Cohen the Barbarian, is an old mate of mine who I worked with in theatre. He's so um, good. I'm so jealous. I mean, I'm sure uh, you could have played that part too, Ben. No, but, I could It would have needed a lot more prosthetics. No, no. I, look, <laughs> it's, I, I just... I need to find my range. Like, in, in the audio drama that I make, I play a character who's far too young. If we ever made a TV version, I would never get cast as this character. And I'm far t and now I am far too young. I'm, I can't play Cohen the Barbarian. Not in fact, yet. I must have aged... I can't imagine... I really want to see more pictures of it because they must have aged Don up. He's not that old. 
It's not as yeah, old as they, as they did. They did some serious work on him. Yes, but also like it's like King Lear. It's a part you can grow into. Oh, mm. I'll someday. To I still. I just. I'd be happy to play Rincewind, but we're not here to talk about him. Um, <laughs> I mean, I that just guy. think I look like him, that's all. Uh, what do you... Uh, anyway, uh, let's talk about the story itself, shall we? So it starts out, you know, it's just Colin just riding this horse, um, like, just across a plane, towards, along a trail, towards a bridge. And that's it. And we don't... I mean, I don't know that they... Where do they, where do they say that it's happening? Because it's, it's in a... I don't know that they actually really specify. They mention a few place names, but... I think, because I'm pretty sure... He, does he have his diamond teeth in the story? Uh, it's, so it's after, it's after like fantastic. I don't I know presume. that they mentioned them. No. I mean, I it feels to me like it's after most of the Cohen appearances. Probably not. Obviously, not the last hero. But no. we have a, we have a hand in the audience. Okay. <laughs> if you can pronounce his he, s's. It does date the story. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's fair. That's fair. And he does and he does pronounce them. Yeah. Um, but it seems odd that when he's fighting a troll, the troll does not like go. Where'd you get them teeth? <laughs> like, I, uh, yeah. But well, I think perhaps he was a little bit too afraid to ask. Uh, I mean, it's, it's awkward. Oh, yeah, isn't well. It? <laughs> also, maybe he's not showing his teeth, you know? He does turn up on his back with a knife in his back. Um, maybe it's starstruck as well. Like, you might sort of just let that go if he's, mm. like, fancy. Yeah. I mean, he's probably quite, know. He's, he's quite like, excited about the idea of possibly being killed by Cohen, so perhaps the possibility that his teeth would also. Uh, end up in a barbarian hero's mouth. Like that's maybe that's a bit of an honour. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it seems reasonable. It seems reasonable. Uh, but he's just riding along, and he's there for a very specific reason. He feels like it's the end of his career, so I think that also really dates it. Um, but he's alone as well, which is a bit unusual for I, this late stage of his career. I have a, quite a serious question to ask. Mm. It's: Do you feel that Cohen is attempting to commit suicide by troll? Yes. Hey, it does feel that way, doesn't it? Which is really kind of yeah. sad. It's like he's just, I'm ready to go out, but go out in a blaze of glory. Yeah, but then you also get the impression that maybe he's been trying to do that for the last 40 years and it hasn't been working yeah. out so well for him. Yeah. Like, he talks about the fact that getting old was not the plan. He does not have a pension. He does not have... His plan was to die young in a blaze of glory, and obviously he's failed to do that, and he, he continues to fail to do that. He's just but too good at barbarian anything. Have you seen The Mummy? The, 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 not the, the crap Tom, one. Yeah, the good one. The good one. Yeah, the, not the thirties one, but yeah. the, no, 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 the Rick O'Connell one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you know how there's that um, that old British pilot who's just in Egypt and he's always talking about how all the boys died in a blaze of glory and he's just here just drinking and waiting and he finally gets his opportunity to like fight the mummy by flying his plane to the sand. I kind of got that vibe. Like he's sort of sitting around waiting for that. Yeah, yeah. And now, but now he's just he has to go out and pick fights because there's none. There's no heroic deeds left to do. And because his ear is over. Like, it's the yeah. tail end of his ear, and it's kind of sad to outlive your time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Cohen has always been... The thing about Cohen that's so interesting is that we met him for the first time as this person who was past his legend. You know, he's, he's outlived everything. And he's always that. Like, it, I think it's really interesting. It would be interesting to, to hear from people who, who come across the character for the first time in this story... Because I don't think you need to know more about Cohen than you get in this story. No. But if you've seen him in other books, then you recognise him. You always recognise him when he turns up. He's always pretty much the same person unless it's like pro before or after he's had his teeth in. But, yeah, just that sense of it's just so exhausting being old but also when your reputation was on being, being young and heroic. It's, yeah. 
But I think people get that, and you can get that instantly from the short story without you don't need the backstory. Yeah, and I don't think... I mean, I've never... I don't know about you two, but I, I've never felt a need to read a story about young Cohen, you know? Like, well, no, because if you need to do that, you, you, you can just read Conan the Barbarian, because that's what it is. Yeah, that's true. It's literally that. Like, it's Robert Howard. Yeah. Surely HBO is already working on that in the style of young Pope. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Yeah, well, does that mean we... Do, like a well, sexy Conan the Barbarian. Well, well, uh, what's, his, what's his... Jude Law already has a line in playing, like, the sexy young version of old characters, right? Oh, yeah, Jude Law would be playing he, this character. He'd, well, he'd, he'd give it a shot. Actually, Except yeah. he's getting older as well, so, like, who's going to play the sexy young version of him playing sexy young versions of characters in the <laughs> biopic of his life? young Jude Law? It's, it's an interesting question. Oh. Uh, they recently announced that they're doing a... Pro, was it a prequel to Greece? Um, called Summer Loving. And yeah, I don't like, want that. Wow, that, you mean that backstory that is explained in a couple of lines of a song. Um, so maybe if they did do, like, Cohen, the prequel, it could be a musical. A musical? Okay, I'd watch that. Oh, if you that, can make now. the Hobbit three movies, you can do a Grease prequel, but you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's actually a deep disappointment to me that none of the Discworld media adaptions to date have turned them into musicals, because I think that would be really great. <laughs> yeah, I, there is... Was there not a stage musical? I think there might have been. Um, I, I feel like there was one. Oh, no. Uh, Only You Can Save Mankind got turned into a musical. Oh, I didn't know that, but that's amazing. I know, because I know that's one of your faves. Uh, mm. It's one of my faves, too. Uh, I've listened to a couple of the songs from it. It's a bit, it's a bit weird, but it's, but it's good. It's good. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that idea, though. We could totally have a, a musical. Uh, but he's, he's pointing out... The other thing, though, that struck me is that the timing of this story in the Discord chronology... So there's this very... There's a very gradual shift when you read the novels of the evolution of Ankhmore Pork and sort of the industrialization because it's kind of going through an industrial revolution, basically, but with less smog and more cogs um, in, in the Discworld. And that seems to be the time when this is happening. Like, this is... You can imagine that this scene is happening and, you know... I mean, it's probably too early, but you can imagine the first Clax Tower going up and he's, like, looking across yeah. the landscape going, what, what is that? He's like an old man who can't use a mobile phone. He's like, what is this tower? I don't like it. Should just I climb it and set it on fire? Just whack it with your sword. Yeah, just, <laughs> just whack it with your sword. <laughs> fix it. And, yeah, and it doesn't even have to be late Discworld for that to be the case. I mean, that, all that stuff was starting to happen in the fairly early books. You see it in Moving Pictures and in mm. the Guards books and that whole thing of the trolls getting jobs away from their culture, which is in itself a really interesting... Thing, that idea of the, it's the modern generation that aren't necessarily beholden to the traditions. It's something we see across a lot of different cultural points, whether it's, I mean, there's a mention of farmers in the story, but things like, you know, the farming generation and the next generation don't want to take on the, uh, you know, the heavy family business. They want to go off to the city and do their own thing. Um, the loss of legacy is, it's really an interesting thing because it weighs on this story very much. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that it's a bad thing. I mean, obviously, Cohen and, and Micah are... The, the point that they find to commiserate with each other is that they both feel really old and they feel left behind by all this stuff that's happening. But they're not necessarily saying that it shouldn't be happening, just that they kind of wish they hadn't got old enough to see it happen. Yeah, yeah. And it made me think... I mean, the introduction, because he explicitly calls out Lord of the Rings, also made me think about those characters in this context... And I, I think it's no surprise there's never been a sequel 
to the Lord of the Rings because you don't need to know what happens after you defeat Sauron. What do you do next? Well, you don't. You just can, go to sleep. You just I, have a rest. Can you I marry just, Arwen and have a really sad, depressing, and boring story in the Silmarillion? Can, well, can I just okay. share my Lord of the Rings reading experience because sure. I, I read. I didn't read Lord of the Rings until I was in my early twenties, largely because. Uh, one of my best friends uh, found out I hadn't read The Hobbit first and so she stole the book and wouldn't let me read it. And so I was like, eh, whatever. And ten years later, uh, I saw the first movie and I decided, I was in London I decided to read the books and I read all three books of Lord of the Rings in about two and a half days. Which really how? You had nothing else to do, I assume. Yeah, but like physically how? Yeah, I know, I know. I'm pretty sure two of those was in the... It was... I don't know. I, I went into a fugue state and we were in Nottingham and it was like, no, I don't want to go out and see cool things. I need to stay here and read my book. And my very understanding husband. So he went off and like had these amazing travelling adventures while I stayed in the bed and breakfast and finished Lord of the Rings. And he came back and found me in tears because I'd finished the books and then I'd read the appendices... And the appendices beautifully lays out how every character dies, yeah, yeah. at what age and under what circumstances. Writers, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> no. And I'm just like, they all die. And he's like, some of them, it's centuries later. And I'm like, there's... So, yeah, I have a lot of emotional feelings about sequels and Lord of the Rings. But this they is, all die. <laughs> but it's a similar thing because basically Frodo and Sam get taken out of their timeline and so when they come back, Sam's able to adapt back to life and Frodo cannot because he's kind of moving at a different pace. Like he's outgrown Hobbiton, which Hobbiton didn't like stay innocent. But no. yeah, Frodo is so ruined by it, he has to go off on a ship to a place. So yeah. I think it's Spoilers. really interesting that this story is so... And, and the fact that it was written for a Tolkien anthology, it's so overt about its origins. Like, it's possible to read and enjoy Discworld without knowing what all the various bits are satirising, like which bits come from, say, Tolkien's version of fantasy versus Fritz Lieber's version of fantasy or Robert Howard's version of fantasy. Um, it's really exciting to be able to be able to pick those parts bits apart, but you don't need to do it. But this is really overt. This is... This is Terry Pratchett standing up there and saying, oh, yeah, I took the trolls from Lord of the Rings. I did my own thing with them. This is, this is the story. And can I just say how much I love that the, Micah is the main troll? Yes, yeah. I, I'm bad with names. I love that his wife is called Beryl. Yes. <laughs> it's just so Terry Pratchett. He's good. Beryl, bring the kids. <laughs> I, I had a grandmother called Beryl. So, you know, it's actually it's that lovely name. kind of... Was it, she it, a troll? Sorry, that's personal. <laughs> that is very personal. I never met her, but still. Um, yeah, it's got that particular... It, it's of a certain vintage as a name. It's not one of the names that came back. You know, all the grandma names came back, like Ruby and a lot of those names. Mm. Really trendy. Beryl hasn't made a comeback. No. My favourite's Hortensia. Like, I'm waiting for that oh. to come back. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that yeah. is a nice mm. one. Neither of my grandmother's yeah. names have come back. Let's get back to the story. <laughs> What are we here to talk about? Oh, Trolls. Trolls. We haven't talked about my grandmother. No. Okay. Sure. Uh, let's talk, can we talk about the talking horse? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, yes. let's talk about your grandmother. No, no. Let's not, let's not talk about my grandmother. Let's I, talk about the talking horse. I do love the talking horse. He's great. He's so sarcastic. And he's, like, you, you were talking about Cohen being alone. We haven't seen him alone. He's not alone. He mm. has his horse. That's, yeah, well, he didn't want a talking horse. No. I kind of like that that's the vibe. But he's talking to this horse and, and he's just like, why? And just why? The, like, the trope of, like, Reluctant hero with talking animal is quite a good one, I think. Is it a trope? Like, it's happened a few times, but not enough yeah. to be a trope. Like, Shrek and yeah. Donkey. Well, it is. It's a sidekick. It's the comedy sidekick who's kind of 
especially because he's the hero, having somebody who's poking at the heroic stuff and making fun of the hero, mm. like that's a really, it, it's a good narrative trick that never really gets old to have somebody walking behind the hero making fun of him. It's like making your satire its own character, like literally putting it in an animal and being like, being off in the world. So. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to give the lampshade a name uh, <laughs> and a voice. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, I mean, it's just something that Pratchett does quite a bit. Uh, I mean, you see its ultimate expression probably in moving pictures where you have, like, the whole horde of talking animals, but also, you know, Kring the talking sword. Rincewind fulfills that function pretty much any time he ends up near a barbarian or some other sort of hero. He immediately starts talking about how the hero's going to get them all killed. Are you calling Rincewind a talking animal? Yes. Yeah. Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. It's, the type of animal is human. Um, wow. We're animals. <laughs> um, no, but he's, it's the same trope, though. I remember. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Fisty cuffs it is. Uh, yeah. All right. yeah. Well, I was thinking, because we never get straight heroes in Discworld. We never get, like, because that's not the point. The point is you always have ones that are being taken apart before your very eyes. <laughs> like, whenever there is a heroic trope of some kind, it's already being dismantled. Sometimes it's already in pieces by the time it's presented to you. Um, the horse is great. Uh, he has a lovely deadpan voice. And it is exactly what, what Cohen's... And you note, he bought a horse from a wizard who turned out to talk. There is no reason he needs to still be travelling with that horse. Like, there may be people out there who would like a talking horse. I think he complains too much. I think he really loves the horse. Mm. <laughs> well, he'd hope so. It's his he one would, friend. He yeah. would be lonely without the horse. Yeah. yeah. Does he the got... horse talk to other people or is it just Cohen? <laughs> Because, well, like, does the horse really what talk? What are you suggesting? It talk, no, it talks to the troll. It does talk to Micah. Yeah. It does? Okay. Yeah, Although yeah. I don't know that we actually see the troll respond to the horse. It's true. Yeah. It's true. <gasps> is, it, is this an imaginary friend situation? Because yes. I don't think I can cope with that. Because, oh. like, in the first season of Scrubs, the janitor doesn't talk to anyone except for JD because originally he was going to be a figment of his imagination. Oh, yeah. But they changed that because Scrubs went for about 20 years um, and it would have gotten boring. But I'm just wondering if that is the situation... Horse doesn't really talk. Uh, could be, but I mean, but uh, it's the Discworld. We yeah. know that. But he know. can He could have a talking horse. Doesn't mean he does have a talking horse. Mm, that's true. Yeah, yeah. You're breaking my heart. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Which would make the horse part of Cohen. I do they do I, what I? It's just occurred to me because I was just thinking about talking horses, and of course, you know, there's as you do. There's a long history of talking horse things really there's mr ed and then there's like things that were ripping off mr ed and then there's this that's about it but um but the horse does it in the film do they do they use cgi to make it talk or do they like just give it some peanut butter to chew on no the horse was just a really good actor and apparently it figured out that it figured out how to do it and they all just like they were telling us the story last night it was legit the horse just acted (laughs) and everybody just like quietly coped with the fact that the horse learned to act it's around. a really good horse. Love, love yeah. a good horse. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, it's also... I mean, the way the horse is described uh, in here, uh, and I'm trying to find the description, but I don't... It's not It's not like... It's not a good horse. Like, it's not like a, a thoroughbred of, ready to win races. He's no, a bit no. of horse style. <laughs> it's like... Antagonistic and horse style. If not the horse <laughs> equivalent of Cohen, because that would probably just be, you know... It would not necessarily be a lie. Unless it, it is, because it, it's in his brain. Yeah, but it's, maybe it's more the horse equivalent of, of Rincewind. It's definitely a horse that has a lot of miles on its hooves. 
When, when I first read it, and I read the, the sentence uh, where there was uh, a horse, when it said it was an old horse, I was like, wait, is it, is it Binky? Is this is like death waiting for Colin? What's going on? And then it was like, it was an old rider. I was like, well, death's pretty old? And it's like, the horse looked like a shrink-wrap toast rack. I went, wait, what is going on? I was very confused the first time I read it because I didn't, I didn't think of... I never think of Colin as riding a horse because most of the time you see him, he's just wandering around and all he's got is a loincloth and a sword, yeah. which is amazing because he seems to have a lot of treasure. He's just very good at spending it, apparently. And if you're wearing a loincloth, you probably want to not be riding a horse. Mm. Like you'd want to be walking next to a horse. Yeah, yeah there is that. He's not really dressed for horse riding, is <laughs> yeah. he? He's not really dressed for anything. No, um, he's not dressed. He's not, yeah. not dressed. This is, this is a hero who needs a cardigan. Well, he's dressing for the job he wants, which is Cohen the Barbarian. <laughs> I feel like he needs to meet Nigel the Barbarian's mum <laughs> and yeah. she could knit him something. Yes. I some think cha- they would get along. Some nice chain mail with like a, a nice high neck. Yeah. Some sleeves. Like a crocheted yeah. loincloth. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. you can't wear a scarf. That's like wearing a tie if you're in the service industry. You know, bathers used to be knitted. Like men's bathers used to be knitted. Men's what? Bathers, like when you oh, went bathers. swimming. Yeah. yeah, that's right. They made with wool. What yeah. a terrible idea that was. Yeah, apparently it was super inappropriate when they got wet because it drags and there's holes in knitting. Yeah. I, I, I know knitters who found patterns for the legendary knitted bikini, which, again, oh. not, not necessarily recommended under any circumstances. They also used to have a thing called the bathing machine, which they'd tie like a rope around your waist yes. um, and when you went swimming so that when you started to drown because your bathers were too heavy, they could winch you back in. This is nightmarish. Yeah, but it's it, true. It kind of makes sense. Like, I think, like, it's like in the 40s. Well, wool, wool bathers kind of make sense if you're on a beach in the UK where you're not actually ever going to go into the freezing cold water. You just want to stand on a beach, but you need to wear something warm, but you want to feel like you're on a good beach. So you wear... I mean, there, and there are good beaches in the UK. I'm just talking about the crap ones. But, uh, but yeah, you've got, you've got to wear something that looks like you're on the beach. But, but like, at that point, that was what you... Like, there wasn't an aspirational future oh, image of bathers. True. That's true. Oh, okay. Now I'm trice confused. This is where we launch our new podcast, Bathers. <laughs> <laughs> bath chat. No, that doesn't work. Um, Pratt bath. No, let's, let's not go there. Let's I'm now it. wondering what a Cohen the Barbarian swimsuit calendar would look like, and I think I traumatized myself. <laughs> yeah, but I would buy oh. one. Like, I, I absolutely can you would. I was just thinking, like, when they did all the Deadpool poses, uh, uh, the Deadpool posters with all the, like, sexy poses and stuff. I think a Cohen the Barbarian fundraising calendar could be... Maybe that's how they'll do the sequel to Trollbridge. I think that would be... They could do, how did they not think of that for the crowdfunding? <laughs> Honestly. Could be like the Zoolander one where he's just like the same in front of different backgrounds or he's doing good poses. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, well, so... The horse and Cohen, they have this discussion. Find out he bought the wizard from a horse. Uh, bought the wizard. He bought the horse. <laughs> from from horse. horse. From I bought a wizard from a horse. It, I, I didn't realize that's what was happening because I didn't New know the conspiracy. horse. Conspiracy. That the horse is Rin- the wizard. The horse is the wizard. Oh no! And it is Rincewind. It's like the librarian. Say, is that what happened to Rincewind? Oh, I mean, Ben did say he was a talking animal. So <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it literally. Uh, no, but we we uh, we carry on from the riding across the plain. We get to the bridge, and the, the troll arrives on cue. Um, and it's not the first time in a Pratchett story we meet a troll that's actually under a bridge, because uh, there's one in um, Lords and Ladies, yeah. uh, and I think there's one earlier on as well. Um, but they, it's, it's just, I love how he just blends all the things together because it's more like a, it's a Tolkien-like sort of idea of a troll made out of rock, um, but then also it's a fairy tale-like idea of a troll because yeah. it lives under a bridge. 
um, and they don't like it when you mention goats. And I just, just I like the mash of those things together. It's just delightful. Uh, but then, you know, because his whole point of being there is I want to fight a troll. I want to know that I can beat a troll one-on-one. And then he well, does it almost instantly. I'm like, how did you not already know you could do this, Cohen? It wasn't that he didn't actually say he wanted to beat the troll. Though. He said he wanted to face the troll in one-on-one combat, in oh, single yeah. combat. Yeah. And, in fact, that's part of the veiled language of he's facing the troll. He, this, is his, you know, this is his retirement plan. Um, the trouble with Cohen, of course, is that he's too good. He is too good. So actually there's almost a sense of disappointment. It's like, when like you, oh, I did that then. It's like when you train up your Pokemon too good and you want to catch the other one but it dies on your first blow. Yeah. yeah. That's the worst. Yeah. Oh, that. That's why I like Pokemon Let's Go. It doesn't happen. Anyway, uh, let's, this is, that's our other Pokemon <laughs> podcast. We'll talk about that. Pokemon we should, Bath podcast. We should, we should start a poker chat. No, anyway, we'll talk about that. Um, yeah, so he beats the troll, and this is where we meet Micah, the troll. Yes. My- the Fanish troll. The fa- yes, he is uh, a Fanish troll, not in the bad sense. It's, it's, it's something I was thinking about, because um, I know that uh, Good Omens is very much in people's thoughts at the moment with the upcoming series and everything. This relationship, actually, it reminds me a bit of the Aziraphale Crowley relationship. It's the idea of two people who are enemies. They are, some, you know, the whole, even not necessarily specifically these two, but they, you know, the barbarian hero and the troll, they're supposed to fight each other. One of them is supposed to end up dead or at least thrown off a bridge. Um, but they have been around so long, they are the two people with the most in common. Of course, that's the central thing of the Aziraphale Crowley thing. It's they're on the opposite sides, but they've known each other longer than anybody else, so they have this connection Mm. as the idea of somebody. And it's something you see, I think, as people get older, where things like, whether it's politics, whether it's things that in the past maybe meant that that was somebody you wouldn't be friends with, but you just get to a point where you have a lot in common despite that because Mm. you've just been around or you've been in a certain place long enough for... Yeah. Yeah. Although one thing that where Micah really differs from Cohen is that he has at least slightly adapted to the modern world. I mean, he's still under a bridge, but he's got a wife and kids. He's got a family. Yeah. He works at Cohen... the lumber mill one day a week, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, under protest. Yeah. <laughs> he's not keen on it. Yeah. I and actually, I one thing that struck me is how much this story has very traditional gender trolls. Yeah. It does, it does. That was There's... a good pun, damn you. Yeah. <laughs> I did a laugh. I wasn't you, holding my you. microphone. It was mostly for you, Liz. Thank you, I appreciate yeah. it. Sorry. But yeah, they, they, it's, it is a bit, it's a bit weird, isn't it? It is, but then it's also, well, one thing we're learning about these particular trolls is that they are quite old-fashioned. They've been around for a long time. Mm. But yeah, it does feel, um, because we, we, we've, one of the things we learn fairly early on when we get to know trolls, particularly, say, in moving pictures is that trolls do have very traditional gender roles uh, going back and very traditional expectations of things like romance and relationships. Um, and these are clearly quite traditional trolls. However, Beryl would like perhaps uh, Micah to move with the times, it doesn't mean that, she's, that they're not quite, you know, set in their ways as it is. Mm. You know, you, you like to think that their romance was along the appropriate lines, you know, he, you know... They, knocked her on he the head. Knocked her on the head with a rock and dragged her back to his bridge. And maybe that was romantic once because, you know, a troll with his own bridge, that means he's going places. But they're long-lived. 
I, I don't know how young... It's, the whole thing, they're very long-lived and yet there's a child there. Yeah. And it's like that's... Like how young is a young troll? It's hard to know. We know that when they get really old, some of them get really big and they turn into mountains. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. That, that was sort of interesting to me because they're old, they've been around for a long time, they have these very traditional... Ways, yeah. There's, there's no, not a lot of challenging going there. We're not hearing, for instance, that Beryl wants to get a job. We're not. She wants her husband. Well, she's got a job. Yeah, mm. but that's the thing. But we're not hearing that she wants to, you know, break with traditional lines like say Ruby did in in moving pictures. We're not hearing that she wants to go off and, you know, become a movie star or that maybe she wants to work in the lumber mill and have Micah stay home with the kids. You know, we're not having that level of challenge. All she wants is him to get a different job. Sounds like she wants to be married to her brother. That is a bit creepy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. This, is, and this is meant to be more Lord of the Rings and less Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it's, a, it's, it's a very... It feels like an old sitcom. You know, yeah, it like... Does, yeah. It feels a bit, you know, like Bless This House, those sort of 70s, the 80s... Flintstones, maybe? Yeah, those, those old... A quite British sitcoms in which the wife is a nag and mm. the husband really doesn't put enough effort into family life and the kid is really sarcastic. So I feel like the kid in this this troll is going to like grow up and, you know, go off and do great things. But, yeah. Yeah. Do we, do we think, is Micah, I was just having a look over this, is Micah the original troll who got knocked off his bridge by Billy Goats? Because he's he seems even more. I mean, there's because the the troll under the bridge in Lords and Ladies does not like it when the Burso mentions goats, but I Micah think, seems to be like, no, this really happened to me. I don't want to talk about it. I think this has happened with a lot of trolls and a lot of goats. I mean, one thing we mm. learn from the Discworld is that stories are true, mm. and stories happen everywhere. There's not just one Cinderella. There's not just one. Everywhere you are, everywhere people are, these stories keep replicating themselves, which means that in the Discworld, where the trolls are horrifying lumps of boulder, uh, the goats are hardcore. And I think the fact that we never got, like, really... The, we never got a goat-centred book is, is quite sad. Um, but maybe it's best that they exist only in the fringes of the stories because I think it would actually be terrifying... <laughs> because, yeah, if you were a goat in the disc world, you're just, like, kidding around, that kind of thing. You're one of those tough goats, you want to prove yourself, you'd go and, like, mess with a troll. Like, that's, like, a thing that you'd do. You'd Cohen like, should have gone after a troll. Uh, should have gone after a goat. I would read that. Yeah. Oh, that would have done for him. Now you're talking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I'm that's... just imagining all the goat storylines that we missed out on. I know. <laughs> it's, well, maybe it's that's, sad. that's what he does after this. I mean, he goes and, yeah, anyway. But, but yeah, he and, he and Micah have their discussion. Beryl comes up with the kids because he's like, this is amazing. But he seems very resigned to his part in the story as well. He's just very matter-of-fact about, yeah, this is a hero. He's going to kill me. I'm a troll. It's, yeah, it's but he's really excited yeah. because it's Cohen the Barbarian. And also because he's been he's, – the sense that he's been waiting for this. Mm. He's been waiting under the bridge for some barbarian to come and conquer him. It's his big break. Yeah. Literally. It, it, because he's, he's stayed in the traditional troll career, troll but role. it hasn't paid off. And this is, yeah, this is the big moment. This is the, it's like, you know, the person who decides he's going to stay in the village and be a blacksmith, even though it's the 21st century. And then suddenly someone turns up and is like, I need a thousand horseshoes because we're filming, you know, a fantasy movie just over this hill. And the blacksmith is like, this is my time. Uh, You can finally show your family that, yes, this is a legitimate, 
you know, you can keep this old industry going. Surely that happened in Wellington, like with all the rings. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I think it is quite a happy story that all the, you know, leather workers and armour makers and stuff. Who yeah, and the suddenly... local women's knitting club had to yeah. knit a bunch of chain mail. Yeah, just like this huge, glorious uh, golden age for armourers. In, uh, in in New Zealand, yes. plus you have to. If you're in a film, you have to have like three swords, like one for close-ups, one for fighting, and one for like for some for not yeah. using. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've got two things to say about that. First of all, I think the reason that The Hobbit is three films is because they wanted to keep that industry alive a bit longer. Yeah, that was all about money. Uh, yeah, which was, uh, but also like local money, not just like money for the film company. It's also like let's give all these armorers something to do for another three films, um, and I hope that they make some more amazing fantasy films in New Zealand. Because otherwise, you just go there and you're like, what? What are you guys doing now? I mean, you're waiting for the next fantasy film to be made. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, workshop that's... does a lot of stuff. Like, I was surprised. I went oh, there and I was surprised at how many films that I love that they'd worked on. Oh yeah. So yeah. Yeah, they're amazing. They do incredible work. Bring back Xena. <laughs> now, that would be cool. Isn't there a rumor that they're going to do that? There is a rumor. They're remaking we... literally everything. They're so, remaking like... everything. We don't know if it's a good rumor or not until we know whether it's going to be good or not. So that's the trouble about bringing things back. Yeah. You don't know until it's here if it's any good or not. I just, I mean, I think it just seems ridiculous to me that you would bring back Xena and not have Lucy Lawless play old Xena. Like, I know, right? Something mentoring about a Cohen new the hero. Barbarian type. Yeah. Just like angry, grumpy. Um, oh, that would you know. be so good. Yeah. She could have a talking horse. Can Xena age? Yes. Uh, well, not very much, because Lucy she's... Lawless seems to be basically a vampire. Okay, uh, that's the problem. Like, Lucy Lawless may not be able to age, but yeah, absolutely, Xena can. Like, she's a person. Isn't she, like, half... I, I don't remember the... We, we don't talk about that episode. Okay. She's all human, it's all her, it's fine. But what yeah. about the midichlorians? Shut up. <laughs> we have, have we not had a moratorium on those yet? No, every episode, the midichlorians, you just keep cutting them out. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, they were in the last one. That's terrible. Yeah. They're um, everywhere. That's the point. Now we <laughs> no. I just I've just endured like some really weird fan theories because the new Star Wars trailer came out this morning, and, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. There's a teaser for Star Wars Episode Nine. Don't go and watch it now. We're in the middle of a podcast. But it's, but it's the break soon. Uh, but it's I yeah. We will have a break either. soon. I'll watch it with you. Okay, it's, it's great. It's very short. Um, yeah. It's cool. Ray does something really awesome. I won't say anything Shh, more. Don't spoil it. No spoilers. We should talk about the end of the story. We're getting near the end of the story. Because uh, they, they have the conversation, the kids come up, Beryl comes up, she berates Mike, it's like, why haven't you got a proper job? Why, why are aren't we still you like this? my brothers? Yeah, why aren't we this crummy bridge? And then they leave after talking about the billy goats. She gives Cohen quite a serve too. Like, she's very unimpressed with Cohen. So Mike is here in front of his hero, and isn't she like, you know, you've waited all this time, and you've got like this bandy-legged little man kind of... Yeah, yeah, she's she's not impressed. And I got the sitcom vibes. It's like your husband's at home watching football with his friend you don't like, and you want to go to bed, but you can't because your bedroom's yeah. on the other side of the thing, and you have to walk through in your pajamas. So you just want them to leave. That's, that's got, never got, happened. That's to quite real. specific. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I can't you know, imagine that happening to you. I kind of feel it's more like you're in a queue and you just or you whatever you just want to get home, and then your husband sees like his hero, whether it be you know his favourite game designer or his favourite sporting hero or whatever. And it's like, yes, you're talking to a celebrity. I get that. But oh, it's, it's time to go home. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Also, the celebrity's going to kill you. That would add spice <laughs> to that situation. <laughs> but she's just so not threatened by the whole situation, is she? She's, she's not bothered like, about oh. him going to be about to die. Neither are his kids either. Like, what yeah. he's just, are you going to kill my dad? 
And Mikey's like, yeah, of course he is. Yeah, so it's his resigned. job. You're like, what? No. It's destiny. They've probably been told about it all along. I guess yeah. so. I wonder yeah. if the kid thinks he's going to die that way as well, like at that stage. Like, that's pretty bleak. Well, well, it's pretty clear he's not going to kill anybody else. No, as in like... But it's part of the business model. Yeah, so like if he's expected to take over the bridge, he's oh, like, oh, well, I'm going to... True. One day yeah. die. Not like today, but... He's a bit yeah. too young to take it over today, I would have thought. No, no, but that's the idea is like he grows up, he becomes the... And that too, it's like, well, they're trolls. They can live for a really long time unless they're, you know, killed by wandering barbarians yeah. or goats. So, like, what is the succession plan? And clearly the succession plan is for the kid to take over the bridge. But what does Micah do at that point? Micah is expecting to be dead at the hands of a barbarian hero. So he doesn't seem bothered by the fact that his child is a little bit too young for that responsibility. Mm. He's just really excited because this is a celebrity. And that assignment doesn't last long, though, because as soon as his family leaves... Cohen reveals to him that I wasn't going to kill you. I was just going to maybe throw you off the bridge a bit, yeah. <laughs> um, which is not pleasant. Like It seems like all these bridges, this is the other thing, though, all these bridges where the trolls live, they all seem to be ridiculously tall bridges. Like, how many deep ravines with rivers are there on the Discworld? Billions oh, of lots, them. Lots, lots yeah, and lots. I loads. Mean, yeah, this is the part that's obviously is inspired by both Lord of the Rings and New Zealand. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, that's legit scenery. Yeah, fair. Fair. I was imagining it as a real small bridge, which I know is incorrect, but I just couldn't... Like, the little one over, like, a creek? <laughs> yeah. Because, like, his kids and wife shot real quick. Like, like, how far below the bridge do you live? Yeah, that's true. Not very far. Like, do you, like, cling to the bottom? Or, like, do it's you like have, living... like, a home? At the... Is there a cottage? That's like living in the flat above the shop. Yeah. It? Yeah. It's weird. But, like, where? Yeah. I don't know. But, again, it's that, it's that beautiful blending of the sort of normal and domestic with the f- fantastical and the deadly like it's that yeah it's great juxtaposition but yeah then, then they have to have a they have their heart to heart which is where they realize how much they have in common uh and and they sort of stare sadly off into the distance it's really like i guess it's really poignant it's like a little tear in my eye reading this story like i was like oh you guys it's interesting oh. too because we were talking earlier about character and plot this is not a story with a plot really there isn't much of a plot at all um, not a lot changes, nothing really happens. It's it's a pure character story and that's part of what's so nice about it. I mean, it's like Cohen walks to a bridge, nothing happens and he walks home again. But where the heart of the story is is in this conversation, in the relationship. Um, but there is this, of course, poignant undercurrent that Cohen was at least partly kind of at least there was at least part of him, I think, expecting the or ho- not necessarily expecting, but maybe hoping the troll would take him out, and it hasn't, and then he's going to walk home again. It's like when people walk up, you know, it's it's the Mount Doom thing all over again. You go through the whole epic journey, and then you get to the end, but then if you survive, you have to get home. And, and there the aren't tr- always flying eagles. And the troll seems to feel the same way. Like there is the whole destiny. It's a famous person, but he also seems a bit world weary, like we've discussed. So like maybe they're both just hoping today was it. Yeah. Mm. I th- the other, I mean, I think the other interesting thing about the end of their conversation is that they sort of get through that into just this sort of general reminiscence, but also how unimportant all of the big important stuff seems to be to them. Like, oh yeah, there was a war. There was like some king and some wizards. What was the? Ki- I don't even remember the king's name. And you remember that on the Discworld, like some things. It, it, I think it's a big contrast with Lord of the Rings because in Lord of the Rings, when something threatens the entire of Middle Earth. Well, there's a king who unites everybody across the entire world, basically, and everybody knows about it. 
presumably. Everyone remembers all the kings. They remember the lists. Yeah. They refer to the charts. Well, There's the, a lot of citing of this king that was before that king who did that. Yeah. But, it's very refreshing that he doesn't care about the people. What they care about is the forest. Like yeah. He's really emotionally attached to the forest. Yeah, but not because of the trees, just because of the horrible spiders, which I thought was great. Yeah, and the idea that this was like a, a dark and sinister place that you were, and you really had to work to get through it. Yeah. But like that's where his nostalgic memories then aren't for people, therefore experiences and places. Mm. And that idea, I think, and it's really interesting to think, um, Terry wrote this in what, uh, the early 90s. He was in his mid-40s and he's writing a story about that deep, draining nostalgia of being old and being nostalgic for places that don't exist anymore. Mm. And, yeah, and I think even, like, you don't have to be old to understand that sense. Certainly not these days. Yeah, because things are changing so quickly. I don't think someone in their 40s would have written a story like that in the 50s, for example, because they, they wouldn't have seen the past as as different to the present. Whereas yeah. now, even, even if you're in your 30s, like people are nostalgic about the 90s. They're wrong, but they're nostalgic about the 90s. I mean, it was yeah. easier to carry stuff because you had so many pockets. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> you did, yeah. It's true. It's true. Um, yeah. Yeah, my, my teenager is actually in a musical this year, which is based on 90s pop music. Oh, that's illegal. It's horrifying. It's a jukebox <laughs> Especially musical? Especially as it is a jukebox musical, but... The definition of 90s pop music is what not what I consider 90s pop music, so I'm just getting really angry about apparently my generation is now defined by the Spice Girls and I'm not okay. Oh. Like no, nothing wrong with the Spice Girls if you're into that, but I'm just like... But, well, I'm extremely but, into that, but yeah, there was a lot That's fine, on. but I'm just like... but and, and my teenager's like, yeah, no, there's no garbage, Mum. Get over it. <laughs> what? It's outrageous. They've got to tell me there's Alanis in it. What? There is not. That's it. No. I'm going to that school. <laughs> I'm being in that musical. I'm yeah, auditioning. I'm going to take it out. Have you seen that episode of uh, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt where Titus uh, directs a school play? I'm like, I'm going to be like that. I'm just be like, that. no, this music is all wrong. <laughs> Do these songs. Yeah, that's that, fine. But yeah, that idea of nostalgia for, for a place that doesn't exist anymore. It's the going home and realising that, you know, your school isn't the same anymore, your old house isn't the same anymore, your town... Hmm. Um, all the, the streets are different, the shopping centres moved in. And, you know, it's really convenient to have a shopping centre there, but you remember when that was just, I don't know, something else. Yeah, and I, and I think people even in their 30s feel that a lot mm. these days because, you know, when you're younger than that, you have changed a lot in that same time period. But now when you're 30, you look back at your 20s and a decade is a long time in, times, in terms of social change, in terms of technological change, in terms of... Um, physical development of the spaces that we live in now, mm. it's its a much more rapid pace of change, so we all get that sort of feeling to some degree Yeah, um, I mean, in a lot of places at least. Things that were jobs when we were not that much younger than we are now are mm. no longer jobs or won't be jobs in the future, you know. Yeah. Um, everything is changing. Yeah, so this idea of, of being being connected, emotionally connected to places, but also having in common, like meeting somebody and talking about a place that you have in common, I think that even if you have nothing else in common, I think that's very relatable. Plus now, um, if you get a bit down and you want to fight a troll, all you have to do is go on the internet. (laughs) So true. They're everywhere. It's true. Go on to like a newspaper article that has a bit of a spicy headline and everyone's just in there with the wrong opinion. Yeah, Yeah, it's true. And I, it's, it's, I feel like it's it's bad mouthing trolls. Like trolls are quite delightful most yeah. of the time on the disc world. This is not 
Why have they got that name? We should call them goats. We should. We should. They oh, they probably yeah. like that for a few reasons. It's like how That's trolls okay. that aren't made of rock probably like being called trolls because it validates their thing. Oh yeah, yeah. True trolls, not Why? people who are like just wrong on the internet. I always thought it came from like trolling rather than I don't even know if that's a word. As in, like apart trolling. From, apart from the yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We'll look it up. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, we should talk about the end of the story, and, and then, then we should read some of our favourite bits. So, the end, they kind of... And I like how it's sort of revealed quite subtly after Cohen is riding off and he's talking to his horse, um, and he's not killed the troll, but he has got from him a list of three names, <laughs> which I thought was great. But also, I'm like, you're going to murder your wife's brothers? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that is how you do it in troll society, I suppose. Would but- he get all their stuff then as well? Like, which, like his no, wife Colin get it? would get it, surely. Well, potentially, no, Beryl like, would inherit the lumber mill. Oh. And then Micah can stay home with the kids. She can run the lumber mill. Everyone will be happy. Mm. Oh. Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of good to be done. It is really interesting. I think that the, the issue of treasure is really important because we, we, we find out early on that, that Cohen, you know, he's, he's constantly pillaging and looting and getting treasure, but he's spent it all. He's lost it all. And as we found out, he's... Um, you know, he's also quite generous with his money, which is interesting. So the fact that he goes and he's like, well, I'm not going to kill you, but I expect to take your treasure. There's no treasure to be taken and that he ends up. And we don't see the moment that he does it. We're only told about it when the horse makes fun of him afterwards. Mm. But he gives them 12 gold pieces. And the reason he gives them 12 gold pieces is because that's how much money he had on him. Mm. And that's just such a lovely thing. It's just like he actually ends up feeling sorry for the troll, leaves him the money, and, yeah... And he's actually going to go uh, do some some work on the troll's behalf. <laughs> but it's like he paid for it. So it's like it, it's an interesting form of outsourcing there. So, yeah, Micah made out like a bandit in this story. Yeah, he did all right. Well, they've um, kind of forged out a new future for each other. Like because they met, they found, both found like a new pathway that they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, maybe. I think so. Hmm. But it doesn't feel like the story is about that at all because it's almost an afterthought, that aspect of it. It's actually just that they... They had this moment of connection, and that's the story. But it's like people connecting and making each other's lives better through that moment of connection. Because if they'd both gone their separate ways, Michael would have just been under his bridge, getting progressively more dilapidated, while Beryl was like, you should be working more at the lumber mill. Cohen would have been finding a different troll to hopefully like be his final stand. But because these two met at that exact moment, they go off with two new purposes. So, mm. yeah, so they've yeah. improved their lot in life, and it's not as sad as it was. Yeah, and he's kept the horse. Yeah, this is the most important loot of all. Yeah, yeah. he, he could have given he could have given Micah the horse. What would he have done with a horse though? Oh, uh, don't know. Just nibbled it a bit. Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I don't really eat horses. Uh, I'm pretty sure Cohen does eat horses. Oh, Cohen early does. On yeah. In the books, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, does he Micah, work at IKEA? Trolls don't eat horses. Sorry? Does he much. work at IKEA? Remember they had that horse scandal where the meatballs were horses? Is oh. that like too much five years ago? That would, Yeah. See, I was going to say like even five years ago seems like a long time ago now. Yeah, well, um, the meatballs were horse. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's pretty established. We actually see him eating horse meat. And the trouble is it's in, in early books. That's, that's distressing. So he's um, using before his, his diamond teeth, teeth to too, it was really <laughs> difficult for him. Okay. All right. Well, now he's talking to a nice horse who survives and is fine. Just for all the horse lovers. There's the not a lot of meat on this horse. It'll no. be fine. <laughs> Like they've established it's not a very – I feel if it was a a very plump, healthy-looking horse, it might have to worry about oh. what would happen if it and Cohen were, like, 
you know, stranded somewhere. Just saying. It's oh, okay. a magic horse. Maybe it actually just doesn't look like that. It makes itself look like that. Yeah. Could be. I wonder how many horses reveal to Cohen that they are talking horses in order to make sure he doesn't eat them. <laughs> Maybe all horses are. All horses on a disco can talk, but they choose not to. Unless we, they feel that they really need to make an anthropomorphic connection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm worried about this barbarian. Yeah, no, fair enough. Because okay, so we're going to have a quick break so that if anyone hasn't written down any questions they want to ask us, you can write them down. Now, that includes questions about the short story, about anything that we've talked about, or just any general Pratchett or podcast questions that you want to ask us, because this is your chance. We don't do... This is our first ever live show, so it's the first time we have a live audience to ask us questions, so... Uh, we're going to give like, quick five, five, ten minutes before we get back and record the end of the podcast. So just have a quick chat amongst yourselves. Uh, write down any questions you've got or tweet them at us and we'll grab them in five, ten minutes. Hi, Ben here. Elizabeth here as well. And we're just popping in from the future. Ooh. We're coming back in time to just shout out to the audio team who worked on the sound for this live episode. We'd like to thank... Xavier Shafazik, Ray Boyd, and Carl Shafazik for their work on the audio. They did a great job, and any defects in the audio that you hear are my attempts to get rid of the sound of the air conditioner from the background. Which is probably the effect of the air conditioner equivalent of a noia, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, Special guest. I've done my best, and also due to my shoddy mic technique. Don't know why you were just doing windmills with it, smack... Like, it was like being at a Rolling Stones concert, basically. I was just trying to be cool. Yeah. You know, we had an audience. Thanks, thanks. Anyway, that's probably enough from us. Thank you so much for listening to this live episode and listening to Pride Chat. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah. Before we get on to some questions from you, um, we're going to do what we always like to do is just read out a couple of our, our few favourite bits from the story. So, Tansy, you had one that you found. Do you want to read it out for us? Yeah, I wanted to read a little bit about Cutshade Forest, who were told that one of the brothers-in-law, uh, Chert, uh, is, he's running the lumber mill and he's making the mess of Cutshade Forest. He said, Cohen looked up, surprised. What, the one with the giant spiders in it? Spiders? There ain't no spiders now, just stumps. Stumps? Stumps? I used to like that forest. It was, well, it was darksome. You don't get proper darksome anymore. You really knew what terror was in a forest like that. You want darksome? He's replanting with spruce said Micah. <laughs> they then go on to bag a spruce out for like a whole page. It's great. Oh, poor old spruce. Oh, yeah. That is a great bit. Um, it would I lead th- very nicely into like a big shrubbery sketch from Monty Python, I think. <laughs> yeah. It would, and just the use of the word darksome, you know, it's very, it's very specific, just mm. that, you know, and it tells us a lot about Cohen, the fact that he, he likes feeling the dread as you go through a darksome forest, even if it's trying to kill him. Um, I I, really, I like this bit. It's just after um, the, you know, uh, Micah's wife Beryl and the kids, um, including Scree, have come up from the. But they've got such good names, um, and uh, and they're talking. The troll's wife looks Cohen up and down. Rich is he? She said. Rich has got nothing to do with it. Said the troll. Are you going to kill our dad? Said Scree suspiciously. Of course he is. Said Micah severely. It's his job. And then I'll get famed in song and story. This is Cohen the Barbarian, right? Not some bugger in the village with a pitchfork. He's a famous hero, come all this way to see us. So just you show him some respect. Sorry about that, sir, he said to Cohen. Kids today, you know how it is. The horse started to snigger. Now, look, Cohen began. I remember my dad telling me about you when I was a pebble, said Micah. He bestrides the world like a colossus, he says. 
And I just, I just love that he describes himself as a pebble when he was a kid, and I'm just imagining like a baby troll that's like tiny, fit in the palm of your hand, like a pet rock with I'm little eyes on it. I'm assuming that was literal. Like that's yeah. how they make babies. They just, they just chip a bit off. Yeah, like a chip off the old block. Oh. Yeah. Oh, thank it's, you. It's cute. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I like that bit. Uh, but I mean, look, you know, you can read the whole story for yourself in about two minutes. So I don't think we need to read any more of it. We have got some great questions. So shall we move on to questions from our live audience, Liz? All right. And in no particular order, because I shuffled them a little bit. Um, you have been doing Pratchett for a little while now. Are you still enjoying it enough to finish the project? And what is the most enjoyable part of doing this project? And this is from Buddy Bill- Beagleaf. So I'm sorry, my I can't read probably because I'm not wearing my glasses. <laughs> but we uh, that is a good question. I am still... This, we haven't had this conversation, so we're going to have it live for you now on stage. Yeah, so I quit. <laughs> um, and I'm leaving right now. Uh, well, look, I mean, you know, we're now a bit more than 18 months since we started. So we know we've still got about five years to go. And about um, two months more of, of um, gestation if this was an elephant baby. <laughs> really? Yeah, they so were pregnant for like two years. Does that mean we're a bit undercooked? Yeah, no. Um, I don't know why I said that. It's just a fact I know. It's like, a good fact. For two years. It's like. the Discord. You need a, you need four elephants. Ooh. Oh, no. Well, that is about that's how about long the, right the podcast will be, so that's, that's going to make sense. But, I no, I'm still, I'm still loving it. But I really wanted to go all the way to the end and read every single book um, and do some more live shows. I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, so um, I am still enjoying it. It's, it's very good, and I do plan to see it through to the end. My favourite part of doing it I think has been the reread because if left to my own devices I'd probably read the same few that I really liked over and over again and not give the ones I didn't like on first run as much another chance and I just leave those in the back of my mind as ones I didn't like because a really great thing about doing this has been finding things I liked in ones that I had written off so I didn't really like Rinswind I was just kind of like oh well if I never read those books again that's fine and I'd have missed out on so much so We've got so many more to go. I'm excited to find out about the ones that I didn't quite like. Yeah, I think we've already read most of the one, reread most of the ones that I were not my faves. But but we'll see. We'll see. I'm I'm excited to go, and we'll be talking more about that in the rereading Discworld panel, which you yes. will also be on Tansy. So I am. I'm excited. It'll that, be a sequel to this podcast. It, it will. It will. Um, what's what's another question? All right. What's the most surprising thing you've learned doing this project? Oh. Um, Can I answer this one first? Sure. That there's such a thing as a library captain. So <laughs> so when Sarah Pearson came onto our podcast, That's she said right. that she was library captain at her school. And I was like, what is that? Why didn't my school have one? And is it too late to become one now? <laughs> um, we it's could not just too make late. You, we'll make you captain of the Pratchett Library. Excellent. There, there are some go. good shelves out there. So This is our official library captain. That's your title now. We'll put it on the website. <laughs> Yes, congratulations, Liz. You're library captain. I'm going to need a badge. I've got witnesses. <laughs> I can't get out of it now. Ben, so. does, but does that does that make you a library sergeant? Oh, no, I'm not that highly ranked. Corporal. <laughs> no. Library corporal? I feel like I'm more like the library quartermaster. <laughs> uh, or, I, or I muck out the stables of the library or something. Because, like, the Pratchett Library's got stables. <laughs> some, of the, some of the books like to go for a ride. Um, what was the most surprising thing? I think, because this is the first podcast that I've, like, produced like done all the production work on solo because my previous ones uh, I've had somebody else doing the editing the, the audio production so I think um, a slightly more boring answer um, I've learned how long it takes to edit a three hour recording session <laughs> don't do that uh, no I'm quite pleased that we do it because I think um, I think we get a really good result because we do talk for as long as we need to to get all of the things we want to say out and then we edit it back to just the best two thirds of it and I think that really usually results in a really nice tight 
uh, episode that's really good to listen to. But it does take a long time, and I don't think I ever realised quite how long uh, the editing process takes, particularly when you were learning it. So that's what I've learned. Yeah, I sewed an entire dress like while listening to the full audio one time. <laughs> the raw audio. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, we do talk for dress. a long time. Yeah. Um, and we, we kept a lot of interesting bits, which you might get to hear sometime. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there's a few on this one. There's a few on this one. Let's ask a, a few more. How long has this been a thing? Do you mean Pratt Chat or like the world? I don't know, it's a a bit vague. No, I'm assuming you mean the podcast. Uh, Well, we started about 18 months ago. Yeah, we're in... Yeah, so... And we had the idea about a year or two before that. Mm. Yeah, around the time... Do you want to tell the story? I don't know if we've told the origin story. Do you want to tell it? I can't remember the origin story. Well, the short version is when Sir Terry died, Uh, we were all obviously quite emotional. And then I think it was around the time when The Shepherd's Crown was coming out, you had the idea to have a Terry Pratchett book club where we would get together and reread all the books and, and just discuss them amongst ourselves. A hundred percent didn't even remotely come close to happening. No. But <laughs> that gave me the idea that, wow, that would be a great idea for a podcast. And so I talked to you and said, do you want to do it with me? Because I think you'd be a great person to do it with. And then for various reasons, we didn't get to do it straight away. Um, and then we eventually kicked it off. Yeah, about 18 months ago now. Because we, we just released episode 17? Uh, 18, 18 is 18. the latest yeah. one that came out. And there was a, like a little preview episode before that. So, so yeah, it's been going for the best part of two years and with a, a bit more planning before then. And uh, so that's how long it's been a thing. Um, do you have a favourite podcast you have made? That's a good question. So, do you have a favourite episode? No, I, I love all my children equally. Okay. <laughs> if, uh, if I gave you a Sophie's Choice... Uh, no, I wouldn't do that. That's awful. Um, is that the book where she has to literally choose between her children? Yeah, yeah, it is. Oh, it's, it's hard, hard to pick a favourite. Um, maybe a favourite moment, just a, a favourite, not the favourite. Could you do that? Mm. I, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I really liked... Uh, look, I think for me, when, I, when we get a guest who really knows about something that is related strongly to the episode. I think that is some of my favourite moments. I really enjoyed the episode we had with Dan Golding, for example, mm. when we did Moving Pictures, because he's a film academic and he had a lot of interesting knowledge about early Hollywood and stuff that he could contribute to the discussion. So I, I really enjoyed that one. But, I, yeah, I, I know that's not a good answer, but I, I really love them all. I actually got one thing. It's not, it's not something you'd hear in the podcast itself, um, except for every so often if the sound isn't great, it's because it's at my house. Um, and it's not set up as well. And when it's recording at my house, that means my cat is around, jumping on the guest, trying to rub against the microphone. You can really hear his <laughs> bell going off in the last episode that we released. Yeah, so, and he started playing with his ball on a track at one point. So I guess inflicting my cat on people who have kindly given up their afternoon or evening to talk about Terry Pratchett with us. And I'm like, thank you, come to my house and my cat will probably rub his gums on you. That is a, that is a genius segue because the next question is, where do you usually record your podcast? <laughs> Uh, podcast, not podcast, prod, not podcast. <laughs> that's it. That's that's no, that's, that's not appropriate for this audience. Um, so you, um, now where do you usually record? We usually record them in my kitchen. Actually, I have a small apartment where with sort of um, it's like a split level sort of townhouse style apartment. It's not as big as that makes it sound, uh, but it has one. The lower level is just all one big space, and it's the the ceilings are sort of just high enough and just wide enough but not so reflective of sound because we've got lots of cupboards and stuff, that it's actually pretty good. Um, and with a little bit of fiddling, the sound turns out quite well. So we usually record it there. We have been talking about maybe going into a studio. I just wanted to jump back one second and say that podcast would be a great name for our Pokemon podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm into it. We'll okay. It. But yeah, Ben's Kitchen is the answer to the actual question. Yeah, and we have occasionally referenced that. Do you have a favourite Discworld book? Now, I don't think we've ever actually answered this on air. 
But I know my old, my previous favourite used to be Small Gods, and I did really enjoy it rereading it. But I uh, I'm really I don't know if it's still going to be my favourite when we get to the end because I like a lot of them, and there's still a few I haven't read, which I know will shock this audience. Uh, but I didn't want to rush back and read the ones I hadn't read because I kind of skipped the Tiffany Aching ones because no one had told me how good they were. And I was like, I know they're for younger readers and I like his younger reader books, but I don't really need to read those right now. I'll wait for the quote-unquote proper Discworld books to come out. Did you have how that wrong thing? I was. Like, I refused to watch Firefly for a long time because I was angry that um, it wasn't Buffy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a little bit of that. That's I'm like, fair. why are you writing more about this young witch? Where's, my, where's the new Granny Weatherwax story? I didn't know how much they were in those books. Anyway, so I'm really looking forward to reading those. But yeah, Small Gods was always my favourite. I think it still is at this point. Um, but we're rereading soul music at the moment. I'm nearly finished reading it again, and that is really good. I think Small Gods probably still tops it for You're me. you nearly finished? I'm on page five. Oh, no, I don't, well... It's I'm in my bag. Three quarters it. of the way through. Ugh. We lead very busy, ridiculous lives, uh, but we make time to read Terry Pratchett because we love it. Um, how about you two? Do you have a favourite? Um, I My favourite changes around a lot, obviously. Um I think at the moment it's Lords and Ladies, which oh. I will argue to anybody who starts the conversation with me is just a perfect novel, like in itself, to the point that almost every sentence in that novel is perfect and everything that it does is perfect. And it just has so many layers and it is one of those that every reading brings up so much. And it's one that's so... It does that thing that he loved, he, he does so well, which is that those layers of history and mythology all colliding. So, yeah, I, I love that one very we should, deeply. We should have had you on the Lords and Ladies episode. We would have had a fight. I know. <laughs> uh, mine changes a lot as well, but the one I come back to most consistently, and it's going to sound like I'm sucking up to the convention, is going postal. Um, because <laughs> it's, it's very good. It's very good. Yeah. Um, it's one of my faves. It moves around, but that one's the one I come back to most often, and I think it's probably because I read Terry Pratchett at school, and then I had that thing that happens to a lot of people where you get sucked into study and uni and work, and you don't read new things anymore. And after, like, about two or three years of not really reading anything, I picked up Going Postal, and it sort of reawakened my joy of things that weren't just getting through life. Mm. So it's a great book on its own, but on a personal level, I think it was a breakthrough moment for me to feel better in general. So I love it as a book. I love it as what the book did for me. Yeah. Um, and Moise Van Lifwig is amazing. So. Yeah, he is. He is amazing. I, I, uh, oh, well, it's not a, I was going to say, uh, give an honorable mention to another one of Terry's books, but it's not a Discworld book, so it doesn't answer the question. Okay, so um, if you could be a Discworld character, who would you be? Oh. Can I continue mine? Um, yeah. I, I would pro- there's so many to choose from, but I'd probably choose Moise Van Lifwig because he can be anyone. Oh, good good answer. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Tansy? It's a very interesting question. Um, see, I like to think I could be a nanny og, but I don't think I can aspire to that, really. It's too it's too far in the distance. Uh, well, I, you yeah. know what? I'm just going to interject with the, other, the next question because it's kind of like a good one yeah. to think about at the same time because which Discworld character do you most associate with, which is different to which one would you like to be? Yeah, I was basically raised by Granny Weatherwax, so and my, wow. <laughs> and my mother, who I love dearly, is basically becoming slightly more like Granny Weatherwax every every year, <laughs> except only if Granny Weatherwax went through a major kind of crisis immediately after the death of David Bowie and became obsessed with the history of rock music. That's that. 
Yeah. So, so that that's the context. We are reading soul. Now I'm going to imagine that because I'm reading soul music. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the context. <laughs> um, it's it's always the, all the witches for me. It's sort of is question of, of which of the witches. Though actually, I think. Um, the capability and competence of Lady Sybil is something that has always given me great comfort and, uh, yeah, so I, I, I'm very, very fond of, of Lady Sybil. That's cool. Um, I think I probably... Uh, I most associate with... It's Rincewind, If I'm it? honest, it's, it's Rincewind and Ponder Stibbons <laughs> because I've been both of them in different ways, I think, um, but I don't know. I think who would I want to be? It's weird because there's not a lot. There, I mean, there are some actors in the books, and that's, you know, this is what I do as a profession. I'm a performer and a writer, um, so I kind of also like I would aspire to be um, well, or uh, maybe even um, what's Tom this? John. John, yeah, Tom John, yeah. I would love to be Tom John. That's who I would like to think I could be. Just be able to perfectly act any part ever. Um, whereas, as previously discussed, I'm too old for some things. I'm too young for some things. I do think I look like Rincewind. Please cast me as Rincewind. Please just do it. Um, yeah. Uh, would you like to read out some questions, Tansy? Uh, all right. This is a good one. What was your gateway book to Pratchett? Oh, well, um, well uh, we kind of told this story already on the podcast, I think. But I started at the start. I started with The Colour of Magic. And I still, I still love it. Like, having reread it recently... I think it is very different in tone. I don't think it is necessarily the best book to start with, but I don't think that because I think it's a bad book. I think it's just very different. And, um, and I, still, I still have a real soft spot for it in my heart. I think it's still one of my faves. Um, yeah, I went to my local library and I did that thing where I would go to the returned book section and I was like, someone's read this book, which means that it's probably good rather than going to the shelf and choosing one at random. And The Fifth Elephant was there. And so I picked that, and I was like, what is going on? <laughs> yes, that's not a good starter, as we have established. Yeah. No, but it didn't put me off, so I was like, I need to find out what's going on. Oh, good, there's like 20, 30, 40 more of them. I'll just um, keep going to the return second seeing which one. So some other Discworld fan was reading them, and I was just picking up their leftovers. For me, it was the colour of magic for me, too. Actually, when I started reading them, I think Reaper Man was probably the most recent release. Mm. And I did read all of them up to that point in the wrong order, uh, which I thoroughly recommend to people. I, I'm always quite um, you know, firm that the, these are books that can be read in any order, as in the old days a lot of fantasy books used to be, and it's harder and harder to find fantasy series which do that, mm. uh, which is a source of great frustration to me. Uh, but I did read Colour of Magic. I think Colour of Magic works at its best if you do think of it as being a collection of four novellas yeah. rather than a novel as such. Uh, I like so much of what it does and having read so much of the origin material, like the stuff that it's riffing off, mm. uh, I, I very much enjoy the layers of it, even if, like, it's it's never going to be my favourite, but I do have a great fondness of it because that was the first one that I read that was the, oh, you're allowed to make fun of fantasy. That's a useful fact to note for the future. That will in no way <laughs> affect my entire future career. Um, yeah, so... Okay. And the only signed copy I have of, of a Pratchett novel is that one uh, in a really beautiful kind of sepia edition that I'm really oh. very attached to. Nice. Yeah. It's the first time I ever found a copy of the book that didn't have a, a Josh Kirby cover. And I was very excited because I had very mixed feelings about those covers. I have the nostalgia that many people do, but I also have a lot of feelings about the artwork. Yeah, it's very lumpy. Yeah. So I have a very nice turtle edition. Uh, okay, sorry. That question was from Grebo, by the way, which I think is important fact to add. Oh, I'm frightened. Um, 
What else is Greenberg going to ask? Oh, the next one is, which is your favourite Discworld book or why, which we already... Oh, we, we kind of did. Yeah, I think we kind of already answered that. Uh, yeah. Oh, there's a musicals. There's a musicals question. I've been to a Discworld Rocky Horror show. <gasps> oh, yeah. Someone mentioned that. It was I'm like jealous. a one-off thing. They got special permission. They weren't allowed to record it. That sounds I amazing. I don't know how that would have worked, but it does sound amazing. Oh, look, people have mashed up. I, I once read a fanfic that mashed up Rocky Horror and Red Dwarf. Yeah. And they made it work. Do you still Not have well. access to this? I might still have it somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, just asking for a friend. Yeah. Also, oh, uh, sorry, just just running through the uh, the, the comment, comments rather than questions. Another one is the announcement that Lucy Lawless is currently filming a new show in Melbourne, oh. um, which is very exciting. So people can run out and stalk her. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. But find out what show it is. I want to know. I interviewed her stunt double one time. That's the same, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's a very impressive woman. Yeah. Yeah. yeah actually. Yeah. She would I've, have to I've be. read stuff about Yeah, her. she was like 20 when she was stunting for Xena. Like, she was a local New Zealand girl. It's like the best stunt job ever, yeah. surely. Like, it's hard to, to top that. Um, okay. And Zoe Bell. Okay. <laughs> so, this is one for you two. Who has been your most significant guest? Not counting Tansy, of course. Nice oh, save. Oh, yeah, nice one. So, now you have to pick who your favourite guest. It says most significant guest. I don't know if that's better or worse than asking favourite. I think it's, well... Significant to whom, I guess, is yeah. the question, isn't it? They're all listening, so, you know. I think we got really lucky. Um, so so uh, for, I perform as a comedian, so I know a lot of comedians, and we haven't had that many comedians on the show. I think I, we sort of made that as a deliberate choice. We didn't want all the guests to be from the same industry. Um, but Cal Wilson came on our first episode and then came back for our third episode as well, and she's a massive Pratchett fan, and she was great as well. So I think, I think she might be it. I think she's certainly the most famous person we've had on. Um, again, I can't choose between my favourite children, uh, and all our guests are my children. Um, I didn't know that. Um, That's weird. So I'm going to say it's probably Asimov, my cat, who has featured in the background quite regularly, oh, and he's also two or three episodes. Yeah, and he's also our resident Pratt cat. So if you ever see like a cat in our Instagram, that is him, willingly and almost um, gleefully posing at sometimes. Yeah. yeah, he's our other mascot. We have we have. Uh... Uh, Tobias Thrax Mutton Chops the Third, that's our, our dragon, and we have Asimov, the mm. cat. But we've had a really good cross section of guests. I did really like having David Assel come on to talk oh, yeah. about Dodger because he was able to get into the English language sections of that very well, which I thought was great, and I learned a lot from that. But yeah. everyone but brings something interesting. If you don't know who David Assel was, he was the dictionary corner guy on the, the Australian Letters and Numbers show, a version of Countdown. And he UK. does the Friday crossword that makes um, you want to cry. Yeah. If you ever see a crossword and it says D-A, that's him. Don't attempt. Yeah, yeah. don't attempt. That's, that's his, his nickname. Yeah. Um, how would you satirize Australia? I feel like I feel like this is a trick question. I've already done it, um, so I don't know if you, this is a good excuse for me to plug one of the other things that I've done. Yeah, uh, do I it. made a um, an audio drama called Night Terrace. We did a satire of Australia in our second episode. Um, I don't want to spoil it too much, but uh, they think so. So the premise of the show is that there's a time and space traveling house, and the woman who owns it has retired from a job where she saves the world and she doesn't really want to go on any more adventures, but she's stuck in this house um, with an idiot who came to the door to try and sell her a new electricity plan just as it took off. Um, that idiot is played by me, hello. And, um, and in the second episode, they think it's brought them back home to Melbourne, but they find that actually they're in the future on a spaceship, which is basically all of Australia packed itself up into a spaceship and left when climate change got too bad. <laughs> Um, and it is one of the broadest satires 
on the planet, uh, written by Lee Zachariah. It's very, very funny. And there's so many Neighbours references in it because the lead character in the show is played by um, Jackie Woodburn, who plays Susan Kennedy in Neighbours. And she, um, we, d- we decided we'd own, we wouldn't put Neighbours references in except for this one episode. So there's like 20 of them. It's, it's ridiculous. It's my favourite episode of Night Terrors. It is, it is pretty good. Okay, there's also a question here. Those who write or perform, who would you like to review your work, ideally? Oh, that's a good question. How about you, Liz? Who would you like to review your work? Oh, that's a really like that's I could write like a five thousand word essay on my view of reviewing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And also, I I I write like feature. I don't know who would review my. Work. I can't answer that question. It's so good that I need to give it like its own time. Yeah. I I would just like some professional critics to review my work. I think because most of the stuff I do, you know, podcasts and uh, stand up comedy and audio drama, do not have a big professional criticism kind of pool so mm. a lot of it is and which is not to say that there aren't great fan critics out there but a lot of the people who do very little writing except reviewing those things don't necessarily have a broader experience to draw on when they're writing it and so while i love those reviews and they're they're great i would just love yes yeah, so maybe some professional critics to review some of that stuff what i'd like is like a guild for reviewers so that there can be more of them that yeah. get proper training and get pop- well remunerated and yeah. that they do it as their only job because um, in Australia, there's often a, a thing where you have to review things and also create work, and that creates a strange sort of divide. Yeah. So I think if we had more support for reviewing as its own art form, which it is, um, then I could choose from that in 20 years' time future pool of yeah. people. So, so your answer is well-paid reviewers. Yeah, yeah, I want them to be paid yeah. to do it. I, and I, I think that's really important, and it's something that doesn't happen much, particularly in Australia, but also disappearing. everywhere mm. it's, it's becoming a problem. I mean, I remember a few years ago, um, and it was either the first or the second year that the Herald Sun was the official sponsor of the comedy festival. They said, well, we don't, you know, we don't have any art stuff. That's okay. We're just going to send all of our writers about everything else out to review comedy. Oh, they still and we do also, that. Which they, do, which they still do. But that year they said, and we thought this year it would be great if we sent like our football writer to review a show about sci-fi nerds and we'll send our gardening writer to review a show about ballet. I'm uh, like, why are you specifically sending people to review things they know nothing about? And, um, and it's that sort of weird attitude that anybody could do this. It's like... It's not important. Yeah. And that's why I think actually fan reviews are really important mm. because yeah. the fans do know. You know, we do know what we're talking about. We've read lots of sci-fi. If we, if we review a book, we've got a context for it. And I'd like to see some professional people doing that. So, and that's yeah. a good path for fans to go down. If you're not writing your own work, maybe you can become a professional reviewer. Well-informed and hopefully well-remunerated reviewers. Yeah, yeah ideally. How about you, Tansy, though? No, I, I agree with everything you've said. I think science fiction and fantasy has always struggled for coverage, especially here in Australia. Any kind of ma- even as science fiction and fantasy itself has become a lot more mainstream at a time when the media coverage has shrunk drastically. So I really am at a stage in my career where it's like any any reviews, any at all, honestly. Yeah. Like yeah. It's tricky. It's just it is it is hard. Even getting access to putting things up. Uh, especially with self-published projects, putting stuff up on things like NetGalley, finding reviewers is really hard. Mm. And more and more it's becoming important because that's, you know, I mean, look at something like, say, Amazon, which, you know, is problematic in many ways as a business model. But as a writer, if you don't have a bunch of reviews on Amazon, people just don't even give you a chance. Yeah. Um, so we've got a comment from Danny, which is, at the end of the short film, the credit music of Trollbridge is the What Cohen Did Next Son by Martin Pearson, which details his encounters with Micah's brother-in-law, and it's a ballad, as told by the horse to a bard, worth a listen. So that, is, that does sound worth a listen. So I'm going to have to say that. My listen. eyes lit up at the word bard. 
Uh, and then we've got one from Alex Ashcroft. So Going Postal, Hogfather, The Colour of Magic, Trollbridge and the upcoming Watch series have live action adaptions. Of everything else, what would you most like to see committed to film? Mm, good question. Just, to, I mean, I'm, we're focusing on Discworld stuff, obviously. Um, I, look, I, I feel like, like Going Postal was really good. I think of the TV adaptations, it's probably the best one. I think Hogfather was also really good. As discussed on a previous episode of Pratchett, I refused to watch The Colour of Magic one uh, because I'm like, I think David Jason was such ridiculously bad casting for Ritzwin. But, I agree um, with you. I did watch it, but I felt that all the way through. And I'm still, I'm still, I'm still angry about the cover art that depicts Rinswind as an old man. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's it's. Just, I think Sean Astin was was genius casting. Though. Yeah, he does very well. Um, so I will watch it at some point. But I um, I don't know. I think I'd like to see a live action adaptation of one of the witches stories. I want to see yes. Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og. I want to. I want to start. I want to start with um, Weird Sisters. I think it'd yeah. be great. I'd love to see all the witches stories done as like a series of really good telemovies uh, because all of them are very, very visual, not just because the casting would be amazing, such great parts for actors, yeah. Um, but also the visuals, you know, we'd get Lanka, we'd get the witches abroad. Mm. Uh, I really want to see Masquerade. I think Masquerade would be an incredible film. Um, it would be just so visual and interesting and also one that's probably like quite, budget friendly as long as you can get hold of a theatre you know a lot of these can be done quite managed I think it's been really interesting to see how they started doing ones like going poster where they finally decided oh that's how we film Discworld we treat it like it's a historical and then we add just like a little bit of magic here and there and a little bit of CGI and I think that's a really clever attitude but yeah I'd love to see the witches series as a series of of standalone really good telemovies I agree with that completely. Um, I'm excited there's going to be a watch one because that's the one I would have said if that wasn't already in the pipeline. Yeah. Um, I think I would really like to see a moving pictures film, but I don't know how you'd do it because it would be very (laughs) tricky because it's it's a fine line between making it too naff and too meta and getting it exactly right. And it is a bit bonkers in all the things that you'd want to have included, but I think... With the right writer and the right cast, it could be very good. I think, yeah, it would be a tricky one to adapt now, I think, because you'd want to make the references more current because it's so much about the yeah. golden age of Hollywood. I think now it'd have to be about our modern blockbuster culture. But or at least I want bring the in a lot of references. But you could do the classic oh, yeah. ones too. I mean, you could pack in so many visual references mm. uh, through casting, through costumes, so many film jokes, visual jokes you could put in without taking away from the story. Yeah. Um, you'd have to figure out who you would cast Carrie Elwes as because I think he would have to be in it. <laughs> and I think it would have to have that kind of arch, you know, yeah, I think or, you'd see it as... You know, you know what? You'd yeah. cast him as Dibbler in that film. <gasps> you totally yeah, would. Yeah, that would be you really totally interesting. Would. But, like, every casting choice should be, like, a visual joke in itself. Yeah. Um, whether people are casting for type or against type. Um, I mean, you have somebody like you know, Emma Watson as Ginger, why not? <laughs> uh, but I just love that idea because there are just so many little throwaway references to classic movies. So you can have your Marilyn Monroe jokes and your Douglas Fairbanks jokes and things like that. But, yeah, I agree. You can put in quite a few modern ones as well, uh, just just packed from the rafters. It would look amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah that would yeah. be cool. That would be, be so good. That. It um, would have, that would have to be a big screen one. Like, I, you, yeah. you can't not. It would have to be in the cinemas. The background would be the main thing. Well, yeah. not the main thing, but yeah. 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 I, I, still have, uh, I still have my fingers crossed that in the... And I don't think this will happen in the first season, but I'm hoping the Watch series goes on. And I hope that in the later seasons they just bring in lots of other characters who are in Ankh-Morpork. Like we meet Rincewind, we meet 
you know, um, well, we'll yeah. meet Simo T. Dibbler, obviously, but, you know, a lot of other characters who are there uh, who are not necessarily a big part of Watch Stories, but you'd bring them in. I think that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. And a Gaspard um, series for children. Yeah, yeah, that'd yeah. be great. Oh, man, I wanted to do Trackers again. Yeah, actually, if we're gonna go, if we're gonna go. Uh, I'd love to go non-discord just for a second. I'd love to see a new trucker series because I just really, I love the stop motion animated one, but I'd love to see the whole thing like go all the way to the end. But I think that brings us to the end of the podcast. <gasps> oh no, Tansy, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. Um, Please if, invite me back. If people want to find out more about you, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me at tansyrr.com or tansyrr on Twitter. Yeah, and I'm on three podcasts. Galactic Suburbia, which is three Australian women talking about science fiction and publishing industry uh, and other things. I'm on Verity, which is uh, six women from all around the world talking about Doctor Who. It's great. And Sheep it. Might Fly, a very iconic sheep, uh, <laughs> which is just me reading my serialised stories uh, as a weekly episodic thing. So that's my low-key podcast for people who just want to hear my voice, reading them stories. Always. Always. Liz, is there anything you want to say before we, we wrap up? Um, I think people have noticed how much I nod and don't talk. <laughs> um, so if there's ever a long silence, I'm nodding. Yeah. Okay, right, yeah. So just remember that if you listen to the podcast. Oh, was it like podcast. what am I accomplishing in my life, not just that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, do you have anything to, you want to tell people about? Uh, we've I'm kind of run out. The last few episodes we've had, like, oh, we're going to be at Speculate. We're going to be at Nullis. There's no point telling you about this. We're here. So if you're not here now, you missed it. <laughs> Although I do think you know, if anyone has any ideas and would like to come up and, and tell us while we're at the con what you think we should do our next live show about when we next do one, because um, hopefully there will be another one um, if you all enjoyed it. Have you had a good time? Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Tansy Rayner-Roberts. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchettpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag PratchettNA7. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.